So we continue our series on 1 Thessalonians, and today we're into the second chapter, 1 through 12. Remember that Acts 17, 1 through 9 is Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And how long was he there? Not very long, and he was chased out of the city. So he, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, shows his affection, his love for the congregation. Today we're going to see um, Paul's true shepherding heart. Let's hear God's word. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before, and we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. For neither any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor, our toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, God also, how devoutly, justly, blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So yeah, we plan to work through this text, 12 verses, and we're going to see two points, that Paul did not come to them with wrong motives, but he came to them with the sacrificial heart. You see that in verses 1 through 6. No impure motives, but 7 through 12, you see his, his sacrificial love for the people. Need a pattern for us as we uh, go through this text this morning. So, beloved, if we look at uh, chapter 1, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul focuses on the congregation in Thessalonica. How he is so thankful to God for them. I mean, God's amazing grace, how he had taken them away from idolatry and from sin, and how he cleansed them through the forgiveness of Christ. And now he comes to chapter 2, and he shares what they know about him. And it almost seems like Paul is talking about himself a lot. He's talking about himself a lot. Doesn't it seem that way to you? Even the word you know, you know, you know, is mentioned four times. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, 11. Paul says, you know this about me. You know this about me. So why is Paul doing that? Is the Apostle Paul becoming very defensive of himself? 
Is he guilty of something? Sometimes when we defend ourselves, we're guilty of that very thing we're trying to defend ourselves from. Nope. There is good reason why he is talking about himself here. You see, the problem was that after he left Thessalonica, there were Jews, so there were people in the church. There were also people outside of the church who tried in all kinds of ways to try to break down his ministry among the congregation. He had built it so carefully through the careful teaching and through the preaching of God's word. And then they were coming down to tear it all away. How were they trying to tear the gospel away from them? Through slander. Through saying bad things about the Apostle Paul. Things that were not even true. They were making up all kinds of stories about him. And you know, and Paul knows that by doing that, they were also trying to undermine the Bible. Because if people can believe the bad stories about Apostle Paul, well, should they believe the message? Probably not. We probably shouldn't listen to this message anymore. Because after all, look what kind of Paul, what Apostle Paul, what kind of person he is. And so Paul here is not ultimately defending himself. He's defending the Bible. He's defending the message of Christ. And I pray that even as we go through this passage, we see this as a pattern. May we see this as a pattern, as an example for us, but also that we may also distinguish true shepherds from false shepherds. The Bible does. The Apostle Paul does here. And I pray that may also be helpful for us to see that here. He comes with the heart of a true shepherd. Warmly, humbly, he came to the congregation with what? With the Bible. That's it. With the Word of God. And he's saying, I did not come for myself. He says, I came on behalf of my sender. Who's his sender? Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of him. And so, because I'm a servant of him, dare I come with wrong motives? Dare I come with sinful reasons? No, he shows that he did not come to them with impure motives. But he comes with a sacrificial heart. But if you look at verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about that. The kind of impure motives that some people come to congregations with. They're not good motives. They're sinful motives. And that's what makes them false shepherds. Look at how Paul begins in verse 1. See verse 1? You can also follow in Punjabi as well. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, there's a first one, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now another word for vain is empty-handed. We did not come to you empty-handed. In other words, what he's saying is we did not come to you with empty hands begging for money. Right? There's sometimes people that come because they want to look at your pockets. Paul says, that's not us. We didn't come with empty hands begging for money. Instead, we came 
to give something. Our hands were full. We did not come empty-handed. Our hands were, were full. Full with what? The gospel. And if you look at verses 1 through 12, how many times do you see the word gospel? Gospel of God in verse 2. Gospel of God in verse 4. Gospel of God in verse 8. Gospel of God in verse 9. What's the gospel? What is the gospel? Ever think about that? What is, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply Christ crucified for sinners. We're poor. We're needy. We need God's grace. You know, the gospel that Paul preached was a witness to the infinite worth of the glory of God. And at the same time, the gospel was a witness to the immensity, to the greatness of our sin. And Paul is saying that the cross is the only way. The cross of Jesus is the only bridge. That's the only way things can be made right in our lives. Our righteousness comes Our righteousness comes from God. It's not from ourselves. Our righteousness comes from God. How? Through faith in Christ. There's no other gospel. This is the good news of God. That's what he came with. Our hands were full. You know, we come naked. And Christ comes to clothe us with his righteousness. And it's free. It's free. That's what Paul came. He came to bring a free gospel. Our hands were full. And that's really what verses 2 through 12 is all about. He says, I, I came with my hands full. I don't, need, I don't need to come with bad motives. Because I have everything already. Now before the eyes of the Thessalonians, when he first came, and there were no believers, or at least very few, Paul and Silas, when they came, they looked like beggars. Right? I mean, physically, with their eyes They only saw empty hands. Think about where they were. They were in Philippi. They were beaten. They were stripped of their clothes. They were whipped by the guards in prison. They were stripped of everything they had. They still had the scars on their backs, the stripes on their backs. Why? For preaching this full gospel in Philippi. And now they had come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And these men were battered. But you know what? No matter what. They may have been battered. But they immediately went to preach the gospel of God. That gospel. With courage and with boldness. See verse 2? It shows that. Look at verse 2. Even after we had suffered before. And we were spitefully. And you could say shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much comfort. <laughs> if you want proof that they weren't in it for themselves, if people are in it for themselves, they're not there willing to be beaten. They're not willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. People who are in it for themselves run from those things. But Paul, King, with the message of Christ. It was about Christ. That's what he's showing here. Yes, such courage, 
Such willingness to suffer, to be ridiculed for the gospel and for the souls of people, that simply doesn't come from impure motives, wrong motives. You can trust that what the Bible says, a lot of the books are written by Paul, God wrote them through Paul. It's true. It's the truth. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, notice what he says in verse 3. He says, our exhortation, our preaching to you didn't come from error. In other words, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't false. He said it wasn't uncleanness. It didn't come from uncleanness. And neither was it deceitful. Why does he say that? Because that's the kind of things people were saying about him. <laughs> right? They were charging him with being unclean. They were charging him with being deceitful. Was saying wrong things. And it was spreading out all around Thessalonica. From the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were jealous of him. And they did not want Paul to succeed in preaching the gospel. They saw the fruit. And they became angry and jealous. And they started saying all kinds of things. And then the other people. You know. Who had their idols. They saw certain people coming away from their idols and turning to Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to replace the temples. And so they were also saying bad things about Paul. If you look at Acts 17, think of some of the leading women, the prominent women in the city. So they may have been leaders. They may have been politicians. Okay, they were wives of men who turned to Christ. Now imagine at home, if the wife started talking about her faith, how might her husband answer? Ah, you women are just a bunch of gullible women. You believe that guy? Ah, he's just looking at your pockets. He's just there in it for the money. He's just there in it for the fame. You can almost hear that sort of thing today. You became a Christian? How much did the pastor pay you for becoming a Christian? Hey? How much did they pay you? But you know what's so sad? when you see this kind of sneaky, uh, impure activity happening among pastors in the church today. They say the kind of things, just what they want the people to hear, so that they can claim fame. They claim to have special powers, there are pastors like that, you know. Yeah, and I know that too. When they pray, they think that things happen. Don't go to that pastor. Don't go to that pastor because those things don't happen. But you go to this pastor, hey, things happen. But you know what? It's not true. It's not true. It's not in the Bible. You know what? Every child of God has the Holy Spirit. Even James says, are you suffering? Ask. You ask. You ask. Yes. You know, and when you ask, God chooses to answer prayer at the time when he chooses to and when he wills. But you ask. You ask in faith. 
There is not a pastor in this world who has more powers in prayer than another pastor. It's simply not true. Because we all have, the Bible says, we all have equal access to God. Pastors may pray with you. Right? Um, There's a lot of that kind of stuff that happens. And Paul says, that's not us. That's not Silas. That's not Timothy. That's not me. Yes, very, very important. What we have to come to the conclusion is that those who act that way are really not true servants of God. They're not. Because they're not doing what the Bible says. But that was not the Apostle Paul. He was not a fake. He was true. He was true to what the Bible said. And you know what he does? Instead of just letting those slanderers say their own things in their own way, he answers them. He answers those charges of verse 3, deceit, uncleanness, and error. He answers those charges in verses 4, 5, and 6 to the Thessalonian congregation. He says, don't believe a word of it. And Paul is not trying to defend himself. He said, I want you to believe what the Bible says. It's about the word of God. It's not about fame. It's not about popularity. It's not about whatever. And you notice what he does? Those who accuse him of error in verse 3, what we mean by error is those who say that he's leading people away from the truth. What does he say in verse 4? He says in verse 4, that's his answer to the charge of error. He says in verse 4, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. In other words, Paul says, we're not here to please people. It's not about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God because he entrusted me. He gave this gospel to me. He called me. I'm accountable to him. I better say exactly what he wants me to say. Nothing less, nothing more. Yes, people pleasers, what do they do? They change the message. They don't say all of the message. Or they say less than what the message is supposed to be. Because they don't want conflict. But you know what? When Christ comes into the world, there was conflict. Why was there conflict? Because he came to bring the truth. Not everyone agrees with the truth. And when people hear the truth, it often hurts their pride. Paul says, I didn't come to please people. I came to serve God. He said, that's not me. I'm not the one that's in error. We've been tested. We've been proved. We've been approved by God. He's entrusted me with the gospel. No, they were not pastors who appointed themselves. Apostle Paul was not a self-appointed pastor who just chose one day, saw a sign in the sky. No, he was called by God. He was sent out by the church. You notice that in Acts 13? The church tested him. The church proved him. And so he says, the church did this, so I've been approved by God. And in case you want to know more, he says, I've been proved through jail terms. I've been proved through beatings and, and, and afflictions. 
He said, if I, wasn't, if I was in it for myself, I wouldn't go through all of that. This is the truth. He tells the Thessalonians, we say everything that God wants us to say, the gospel of God, everything that God wants us to say, whether it pleases you or whether it does not please you, we preach Christ crucified. That's who you need. Yes, he humbles us of our sin, of our pride. We feel shame for the things we do wrong. Paul says, you need to hear that. I'm not lying. And then the charge about uncleanness. Uncleanness doesn't have to only be sexual morality. Equally unclean is being covetousness, is, is coveting, is greed. And that's the meaning here in the light of the context. It refers to greed for money and it refers to self-importance. Okay, that's also uncleanness in the Bible. Uncleanness is doing things for reasons of money and for self-importance. Notice what Paul answers that. He answers in 5 and 6 to the charge of covetousness. He says, It neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak for covetousness. And then he adds, I have God as witness. God as witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. He mentions flatterers. What do flatterers do? They heap praise upon people, but it's false praise. It's not sincere. It's not genuine. He says, I didn't do that. I didn't come to you flattering. He says, neither did I come with a cloak for covetousness. What's that mean? What's a cloak? A cloak is a coat. What does a coat do? It covers us. Right? What Paul is saying is, I didn't come to cover up and pretend that I had... I didn't didn't cover up greed and jealousy, pretending... Pretending that uh, I'm not what I am? No. He didn't cover up. It's a mask. If he was greedy, he would say it. He was not that kind of person. If he wanted self-importance, he would say it. He said, I tell you, God is witness. I wasn't looking for fame. I wasn't looking for popularity. I wasn't looking for money. Paul here is defending himself as a word. Think of him as in the court of law. And all these charges are swirling around him. And he has one witness, God. And there is no greater witness than God. And then he has, well, his hearers, the congregation. They know that too. And finally he says, we did not seek the glory of men. What does he mean here? He says, we did not insist on our own self-importance. We didn't say, well, because I'm an apostle, you have to listen to me. They didn't make demands. He did not use his position to push people around, to demand respect, lord it over others. No, he used his position to wash feet. That's what Paul did. He wasn't looking for garlands of praise. He wanted the garlands of grace placed on the people. He came to wash feet. He was not concerned about his own image as he was 
concerned about reflecting the image of Jesus, of whom he was a servant. And he was concerned that the congregation also reflect that same image of Christ, the one who came to save us from all this stuff and to bring us into his family. Yes, as far as the answer to the charge of deceit, that is, what is deceit? It's tricking people in order to get your way with them. That's deceit. Think of today, and I quote this, faith healers, health and wealth preachers who dominate religious televisions are shameless frauds. They are. Shameless frauds. They're not there to bring the gospel, the word of God. We need to be really clear about that. Paul says in verse 10, you are witnesses. God also, how devoutly, how justly, how blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. You are witnesses, he says. God is also. You know, the Apostle Paul says that we did not come to you with false motives, wrong motives. Because the cross of Christ is the power of God to crush those evils. Paul's been saved by the cross of Christ. Those things are gone. They're dead. They're buried. doesn't mean he didn't struggle with them, but they no longer dominated in his life. They were no longer the power in his life because he had the Holy Spirit. And that's why he can say, No, I didn't come to you in that way, but I came to you with the love of Christ who saved me. I'm the chief of sinners. He saved me. And you look at verses 7 through 12. It really speaks about the love of Christ in such a powerful way. We see two pictures. You just just think of verses 7 through 12 in terms of two pictures. The way Paul perceives himself as ministering to the people of God in Thessalonica. His heart was warm. His heart was tender toward the members of the congregation. He talks not only about himself, but about Silas who was with him and Timothy. What does he compare himself to as? Verse 7, as a mother, a nursing mother. And in verse 11, as a father. Right? Family metaphors. Powerful. Let's look at the first one as mother. Verse 7 and 8. He says, we were gentle among you. What a powerful motherly image. We were gentle among you. How? Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you have been so dear to us. Paul was like a mother. That's what he's saying. Paul was like a mother to the Thessalonians. And a mother, you could say, a mother who serves herself at the expense of her children, is that really a mother? No. A mother sacrifices her life for her children. She feeds them. She looks after them. She nurtures them. She watches over them. She gives her life for them. She'll protect them. And if danger comes to the child, she'll fall on the child and protect the child so that she gets hurt first before the child. 
Maybe you heard this poem before. There's a poem. I forget. I don't know what the name of it is anymore. But it's a poem about a bad, bad, bad son. And he cut out his mother's heart. And he walked off with her heart, carrying her heart. And he stumbled. He fell. And her heart started rolling down the pathway. And you know what the heart said to him? The heart asks him, Did you hurt yourself, son? That's the kind of love the Apostle Paul had for every member of the congregation. If you look at verse 17, just fast forward for a minute to verse 17. Paul, you know, was quickly removed from them by the, by the politicians. And he says in verse 17 that he feels like that he had been taken away from them, ripped away from them. Think here of a mother who has lost her children. Apostle Paul was so affectionately longing for the Thessalonians. So loved them. He was pleased to give them two things. If you see verse 8, what two things did Paul give them? The gospel, and what else? His own life. Yeah, that's the true shepherd. The one who gives the Bible and his own life. He says, that's what I gave. He, he images the heart of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus. John ten eleven, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Paul's not exaggerating. He means it. Look at verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked hard. How long did he work? From 9 to 5? He worked day and night. And if necessary, if someone called him 3 in the morning, he would be there at an instant. Because he did not want any one of those members of Christ to suffer harm. That was the Apostle Paul. He would work with his hands. Then he would take time to preach the word of God. He would have to pray. He would have to study. He would have to prepare a message. And then if you look a little bit later in verse 10, he made sure he visited every member of the congregation. Every one of you. And he then went there to exhort, to comfort, and to charge. That's the sense here. That was the Apostle Paul. That's the heart of a true shepherd. Paul was easy to speak with. He was approachable. He was gentle. He was not intimidating in the least. He warmly and humbly brings the word of the Lord to the people. Warm and gentle as a nursing mother. And second, he was also a father. We're almost complete here. See verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. You know, the mother's side, of course, has more of a nurturing role. But there's also a father's side. He has more of a leadership role. What does he do? You could say he takes the lead, he visits the homes, he exhorts, he comforts, he disciplines, takes the responsibility for teaching and for guiding to maturity. And that's the goal. Verse 12. See the goal? That's the pastor's goal. That you would 
Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That was Paul's vision. He said, I want you to grow. That you may continue to walk in the way of Christ. And enter into the kingdom. That's what Paul would die for that. He would give his life for that. In closing, we also hear the God of this gospel talking to us this morning. Just three things. First, through his true shepherds today, Christ comes to us through his word as well. His is a gospel that says, and I'll I'll just quote a song here. He comes. You know, we all come from sinful backgrounds. We, 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 We are tempted by sins. We are sometimes so far gone sometimes. And here he comes. Here comes Jesus. And he says, come, you sinners. Poor and needy. Weak and wounded. Sick and sore. Jesus is ready and he stands to serve you. Full of pity, love, and power. And then it ends by saying, by the riches of his work and what he did for you, there is joy. There is life in him. That was the witness of the Thessalonians. Second, this is the word to shepherds here. Every congregation has shepherds, leaders. And God says, be on guard against bringing God's message according to the tastes and the likes of the people. It's always a big temptation that we want to say things to people that they like to hear. But we have to stand on guard for that as leaders because we are answerable to God. Hebrews 13. We are answerable to God for our work. No, we should not be afraid to admonish. Because when we admonish, we admonish in the name of Christ. Right? But there's another side to it as well. We are responsible to God for doing our work also with much love, with much patience, and much sacrifice. That's the second thing. Third, the proof, the evidence of our life in Christ is that God in his word replaces gold. Love replaces greed. And that our relationships between one another is permeated, is, is mixed with, with love and has become family relationships. You see the grace of God in Thessalonica. You see, verses 6 through 12, you see the mention of father, you see the mention of mother, you see the mention of brothers, sisters, and also children. This new life of Jesus is your greatest argument. It's your greatest argument for people to come to Jesus. Words, yeah, they help. But this kind of life is powerful. The Bible reminds us that as the time of Christ's return approaches closer, the love of many will grow cold. Egotism, greed, and lovelessness will increase. And we must testify in the name of Jesus Christ that as long as such continue in such sins, they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. That's why Paul says what he says in verse 12. He labors. He gives his life. He gives the gospel 
so that they may enter his kingdom and his glory. And yes, God comes to us in Christ today through his word. He renews, he restores all who come to him in repentance and faith, knowing that our righteousness comes from God when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is rich. Christ is full. We come empty-handed, with no righteousness, poor and sinful. Yes, but he brings us into the most specialist family in all the world, the family of Jesus Christ, adopted by God's grace, free for all who come to Christ in faith. May we walk worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and to his glory. Amen.